meditation. Bring your shoulders up to the ears, together behind you, and down the back. And if you don't already, starting to have the attitude that meditation is like a place of refuge. somewhere you can go to help or for safety protection. And landing right in the physical body. And slowly scanning your focus down your body. bright, interested mind, and at the same time, relaxed and calm. Just let go of any tightness, holding, tension.
finger in any spot where you feel like needs a little extra attention or releasing. And it's not as though we're actively trying to make something happen, but just allowing and opening up a space for something to release or relax. And once you scan all the way down to the soles of your feet, find the rhythm of your breath and park your focus there. You can tell the quality of your attention. If it's too tight, your body will tense up again. So just relax. If you're too relaxed, focus will seem dull or kind of spacey or blurry, then just revive your, your focus or your interest in the breath. There's a point where you just decide that meditation is more important than the thoughts coming up or the distractions. So when you grab onto one of them, just relaxing back into an open, spacious awareness. It's natural, it'll happen.
stage spot that grabs your focus. Just relaxing back into open awareness. Or if your mind's gotten dull, freshening your interest, brightening the mind. come to a clear, bright focus for the last few moments. And when you're ready, you can start to move. Make a dedication, opening up your eyes. Um, do you guys want to hear a joke that I think is really funny? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I told it. I told Lauren. It, it was via text, but oh, okay. I think she thought it was funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you know that cat is short for Cathew? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand how that's a joke, though. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's like Matt is short for Matthew or... You know, something like that. No, yeah. I, I didn't like understand. Bob is short for Robert. <laughs> I didn't understand that. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I sent that to my family <laughs> group WhatsApp. I sent it twice and nobody responded at all. <laughs> the second time, 
And the second time, I mentioned it to my mom. And I was like, well, you tell stupid jokes all the time. And at least there's some response. And, like, no one responded at all. I think that fact is, is what my biggest laugh is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we're on class five. Perfecting generosity. I don't know what happened to this first slide, but something, the rest of them are okay, I think. Um, how to become a bodhisattva. And it's Wednesday, February 6, 2019. What are we going to do first? Quiz time. Yep. <laughs> okay, what is the Tibetan for the main text that we're studying, the root text? Jangchub Sempe Chupa La Jukpa. It's kind of hard to say. And Sanskrit? Bodhisattva Avatar. Very close. <laughs> <coughs> Bodhisattva Charya Avatar. Oh, Charya. It's tricky to say. Um, okay, so say Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. Bodhisattva Charya Avatara. And who is it written by? Master Shantideva. Yes. And what, is, what does Shantideva mean? Angel of peace. He's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would think you would know this from yoga, actually. And so, who wrote the commentary? Oh, mm-hmm. And what's his monk's name? Yeltsub J. Dharma Rinchen. Yep. Very good. And then the Tibetan for the book that he wrote, does anybody know that? Gyalse Chuknyok? Yep. Gyalse Chuknyok. Yep. <laughs> Which is the entry point for the children of the victorious Buddhas. Code word for bodhisattvas. So we're reaching the end of going over the things that can block you from gaining bodhicitta and um, talking about tonight getting rid of negative energy. Oh, I do have the slide in break. Okay, good. Um, so the antidote to negative karma. Say nyenpo kuntu. Nyenpo kuntu chupe tobe. Okay, so this is the antidote force for purifying negative karma. And what do you suppose, based on what we've talked about up to this point, what do you think that the the ultimate 
antidote is. Being enlightened. Being emptiness directed. <laughs> Close. Yes. The ultimate, the un understanding emptiness is the ultimate antidote. And we'll, we'll be talking about that some more. So the antidote is something that you do to make up for something that you did before. And ninpo means two thoughts can't coexist in one mind at the same time. And I think, I mean, like if you try it, you just can't do it. You can kind of feel like your mind or whatever trying to switch back and forth. But you really can't. So, like, think, try to think of two thoughts in your head at the same time. Like, it just, it just doesn't really work. Because we hear that a lot, but I don't know how much we actually, we, we just think, oh, yeah, that's true. But do we really test it out? Because we think that, we think there's multitasking and that we can do, you know, like, in a way we can kind of, like, do two things at the same time with both hands, but we can't be paying attention to both of them, and we can't have two separate thoughts going at the same time in our mind either. It just, it doesn't work like that. So, the ultimate nanpo is understanding emptiness, even intellectually. And when you have an understanding of emptiness in your mind, other afflicted reactions or thoughts cannot be there at the same time. It's impossible. So try to think of something that you have an affliction about, maybe like upsets you or something. And then think about the emptiness of that situation. And can you still be having that afflictive emotion at the same time that you're thinking about the emptiness of it? I find that I can't. If you can, you have extremely talented. <laughs> it, it does. It just changes it. Like, you can't be... I mean, it's not like you feel great all of a sudden or something, but you can't have that afflictive feeling or emotion, uh, even or even thought, if you're having the understanding of it from emptiness or karma perspective. It just can't, it can't work that way. And this is why emptiness is the ultimate antidote to negative afflictions and negative karma that we planted. Does it just automatically purify it because you're like thinking, okay, what's this is empty because of whatever? How is it the antidote? Like, how can will it purify it completely? Like, well, I think if you've like already whatever you've done up to that point would probably still need to be purified, but it'll stop you from doing anything further. But if you're thinking about emptiness all the time, that would be the ultimate antidote because you would never be doing anything negative as well. Does that make sense? 
Does that answer your question? I mean, probably they'll probably come together, but it wouldn't. They wouldn't have to be. But this is talking about. This is specifically saying emptiness. Can you give an example of of, of this? I think we will get into an example. Okay. I think we get into a bunch of examples, but. One would be, um, I mean, you can use an example of your own, of something that's, like, frustrated you. But one would be, there's this girl at work. Um, so we have a gym at work, and I go to the gym later in the day, because I know there's not going to be a lot of people there. And um, there's, like, all my normal gym people that are there, and they're all, like, very respectful and... You know, we, like, are in harmony in our gym environment. And I go into the area where there's the group classes because I can do yoga in there. And there's usually another girl in there who's in, like, amazing shape doing all these crazy exercises. And then this other girl started coming. And um, she seems to me to act like she owns the place. And she walks in. And, like, um, goes into that same space where I'm doing yoga and this other girl's doing her thing. Sometimes there's someone else. And she um, does dance. And so it's, like, on this wood floor. So it's, it's kind of loud, but whatever. She can dance in there. Like, it's a free, open space. And, um, and then she figured out how to connect her iPhone to the sound system. And so she walks in and she starts playing her music really loud. And we're all in there, too. And she doesn't say anything to anyone. And she just, like, owns the place and walks in. And um, if I'm seeing her like that, and then I think about emptiness, I cannot be having that affliction of, like, this is so annoying and, like, anger coming up. <laughs> I cannot be having that at the same time. So it cuts it off. What would you be thinking about? I would be thinking about emptiness, like, Okay, uh, these are seeds that are ripening right now. Is there some inherent annoyance that I can find in her? Like, if there was, where is it? Where is that annoyance in her? And then I look for it. And it's not there. And so, I mean, during that time, I might toggle sometimes back to, like, annoying. the annoying. But when I'm thinking about the emptiness, I can't be thinking about how annoying it is. And the, <laughs> um, I try not to like stare that much, but it's like windows or mirrors all around the room. Um, she's not a she's pretty young too. Like most of the people that are there every day, I'd say are like, well, no, like twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, whatever. But she's probably twenties, like early twenties, um, and. She's probably professionally trained in some way. She's like, yeah. it's like um, kind of like trance music, like dance music that she was playing. But what kind of dance is she doing? Yeah. Like, is she like, like Beyonce dancing. Oh, 
Kind of, but like um, hip hop today, where they're like, I don't know, doing like a lot of moves that aren't really hip hop too. You know, yeah. like, like spinning around and like doing stuff on the floor, and you know, like it's not just like freestyle, like some kind of rap dancing, or like it, it used to be. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's more like choreography, you know. <laughs> And she, yeah, she's not. She's um, she's probably in like a dance group or something. That would be my guess. You yeah, know, it looks like, like one of those dance shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what this is talking about. So it's the ultimate antidote to negative afflictions. So a lot of the things that we talk about here, I go through the notes from what Geshe Michael talked about in the class. So sometimes it feels disjointed because there ha- he has like a flow of what he's going through. And I think everything he talks about is really important, so I want to mention it. So sometimes it, I know it feels like, um, where did that come from? But I think there's a reason that he talks about everything. So I mostly just say what most of the topics that he said, unless it's just like some side conversation or something like that. So, he brings up after this, there's this debate in the monastery, does samsara have an end? Is there an end to samsara? Mm -hmm. And basically the answer comes down to, yes there is, because there's a powerful antidote to samsara, so there will be an end. And some of these things we just have to think about because they're not easily, like that's not easily understandable completely. Like we can, at least myself, we can get it a little bit, but I think to really understand what it means, we would need to think about it more or meditate on it. What was, so because there's an antidote, there's an that's the mm-hmm. debate. That's what the debate comes to. Will there be an end to samsara? And that basically it comes down to yes, because there's a powerful antidote to samsara, there will be an end. Which, I mean, which makes sense. Yes, because there's something that can destroy it, so there will be an end. But I think things are worded in a certain way to kind of, I, I think actually to kind of trip us up and get us to think about it more, especially in our culture, we're all very intelligent. So I know for myself, at least, it can bring like, um, a, you know, more of a sense of like, I know, or like, oh, I get that because I, because we, we have, we've had so much education compared to a lot of other countries. So I, I kind of feel like that's what it is, that it's meant to kind of trip us up and get us to think in a different way so that we can actually have an opening where we can change our heart and change our mind. Because it can't come through, I know, because we don't really know. Otherwise, so I mean, I'm not a Buddha. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. we really knew, we would be out of Yeah. So that's the, that's the perception of emptiness we're talking about as the antidote. It's, we're not talking about the direct perception of emptiness. So if, like in the, 
the example, if you're focusing on a person and understand their emptiness pretty well, it's impossible to have bad thoughts. So just, we've all tried it, but with this in mind, just go out and try it and see if you can do it. See if you can think about someone's emptiness pretty well and also have a bad thought about them. Is that possible to do? And so that's the meaning in philosophical, philosophical scriptures. Um, but here it's kind of different. If you want to understand what antidote is, you have to understand what the sickness is. And that's what Master Shantideva gets into, the concept of spiritual sickness. And the big one that we have is duksum, which is the three poisons. So say duksum. 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 And that means poison, three afflictions. And these poisons are in our mind all the time, circulating constantly like a poison in our blood. And then they cause the 84,000 variations of mental afflictions. And they hurt you, they're always with you, they're insidious, like a poison running through your bloodstream. They're circulating throughout your mind constantly. They're... And there's something wrong with our spiritual body, and it's there all the time. And we've always had it, and we don't know what it's like not to have it. But we do get little tastes when we start to practice of what it's like not to have it. And people translate these as attachment, aversion, and ignorance. And Geshe Michael says that those are lousy translations. Because they're more subtle than that, and they occur every minute or even more than that. And these, those three, attachment, aversion, especially, and ignorance, they, they do have the connotation of being a lot bigger than that. Like, oh, I have aversion, I don't know, once in a while, not like every moment. Maybe a few times a day, but not every moment. And so that's why he's saying they're lousy translations, because they're actually very subtle, and they're occurring every minute. Even more than that. Hmm. Like probably every movement in our, of our mind and like decision we make is based on those. You know, totally. It's so subtle. Like, like uncrossing my legs is like the aversion to like my leg getting falling asleep or like. Mm -hmm. But I don't attach that to aversion. It's like, oh, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I think I'll move. Mm -hmm. But that's because of an aversion and an attachment to being comfortable. Yes. And I think there. I think they're useful just as like a guidepost to remember what the three poisons are, you know, to know those words. But Kishan Michael says they're more like liking things ignorantly, disliking things ignorantly, and ignorance itself. Which then I think when I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, I have that all the time. Attachment, aversion, and ignorance. I don't feel like I have that all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we could get rid of them, we would feel so much better. It would just be like a weight lifted. And it's not like every kind of desire or liking things is bad, 
That's why the ignorantly part is really important in there. Because are we supposed to like suffering? No. Are we supposed to not like Buddhahood? No. You know, is the goal to, of Buddhism to not like anything and not dislike anything? Is that what a Buddha is supposed to do? So we're supposed to like other people. Can you like ice cream or pizza or coffee? You know, like, is, is it okay to like those things? Is it wrong for a Buddhist to like things or to enjoy a good meal or go out to a movie? And I kind of, in my experience, in my thought, there is a way where I think we think of renunciation like that. Um, mm -hmm. And we do think of the practice like that. So we collect good karma so we can have pizza all the time. And is the goal to reach some place where we don't like or dislike the pizza, where we just don't care about it? And that's, that's not the goal of Buddhism. So it's wanting something is okay, but then it's the attachment if we get upset or are willing to do something negative in order to get it. And that, I kind of think that a lot of times when we hear that, we think, no, I'm not going to hurt someone to get that. Um, but that's not true. We do it all the time, and we don't even realize it. It's not, because um, it's more subtle than actually, like, physically reaching out and harming someone or saying someone something to somebody. It's more like... Um, Even just thinking that it comes from somewhere that it doesn't. Just thinking that, oh, I'm getting that pizza out there. Because we're planting a seed that's going to harm ourselves in the future. So it's more subtle than, um, like, I'm going to go and rip off the pizza joint and steal all the pizza or something like that. And I think we also, in our culture, we have this thing, and it's just human nature where we want to feel guilty about something. We're always looking for something to feel guilty about or to feel bad about or looking for what's wrong. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more, but the goal of Buddhism is not, like the path to enlightenment is supposed to be blissful and happy and joyous. It's not like it's supposed to be a drag and every good thing is just like torn away from you. That's not the point. And it doesn't make sense anyways. Like to have this um, crappy, crappy path and then all of a sudden you're in bliss. So we, we'd have to be planting the seeds to, to end up in Buddhahood too. So going back to the idea that we're trying, the highest antidote is seeing the emptiness in the pizza or the, the partner or the friend or, you know, whatever it is. And in the Madhyamika Avatara by Master Chandrakirti, the opening lines 
of the text are the Jason Kappa mantra, which is the first line is Mikme Sewe Terchen Chenre Sik. And it's talking about this highest kind of love. And when you look upon another being, seeing them as completely empty. And it's not like you focus on their emptiness and that you can't feel any emotion at all. It's that you can't have a mental affliction. So it's not like you're just wiping everything clean. It's just that no affliction comes up. And what, I mean, what does that feel like? Maybe that's really blissful and, and sweet and joyous to feel. And if, so if you want a nice picture of the three poisons, where would you go? Like a literal picture. Mm-hmm. You go to the Wheel of Life. And the three poisons, um, ignorance is the pig, liking ignorantly is the rooster, and disliking ignorantly is the snake. And that's on the, the door when you walk in. Okay, and that, then we're going to go over this definition. And this is... So this is a definition of desire, and we get if we get the definition, then we can extrapolate it to the other two poisons. So the technical definition of liking things ignorantly, aka desire or attachment, say sakche ki nupo, sakche ki nupo, la yiyong, la yiyong, du nang me, du nang me. Rongtob ki, Rongtob ki, Midrawar, Midrawar, Dupe Semjung Sempa, Dupe Semjung Sempa, Semjung Sempa. Okay, anybody want to take a stab at translating that? You go from the back to front. doesn't necessarily have to use all of those words there either. It can just be like the idea. So like mental functions that don't want to lose impure things that appear to be attractive? Mm-hmm. Very good. Along those lines? Yep. It's a mental function or thought that doesn't want to lose something which is actually impure, but appears to be attractive. So is pizza an impure object? Is eggplant an impure object? So the sakchen ki nimpo, ki nupo, um, Gesha Michael describes it like honey on a razor blade. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're licking the honey off of the razor blade. So it's something that can, <laughs> can make you miserable and turns to bad because the karma which created it wears out. And this is every good thing that we get. And we know this. We experience it all the time. It doesn't mean that it's like a huge catastrophe every time, but it's every single good thing that we get 
there's always some negative in it when we get it, and it always ends too. So if we think of a coffee, we get our coffee, the coffee is never absolutely perfect. There's always something wrong with it. And if there's not some little thing wrong with it, then it ends too soon, which is the thing that's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Or, it, you know, it's not hot enough. They didn't mix it up right. It upsets my stomach. Um, it's too much and I'm too full. You know, like I'm enjoying it too, but it's all, it's all like that. And it's like if the pleasant taste of pizza could turn to hunger, then pizza is an impure object. Everything that changes is a sakche ki nupo, except for the spiritual path. So liking something ignorantly means to like something which is impure and will later change into suffering. And it's kind of amazing that over and over we're still attracted to these things. I mean, it's karma, and it's, it, we're, we're forced to, you know, in a way. But it, it's kind of amazing that we perpetuate it, too. Because we know how it works out. We know if, if we're watching it anyway, you know, if we're paying attention. So it's being attracted to things in a way which can't bring you ultimate satisfaction or happiness. And then at this point, I think this is where we usually go to, oh, then I can't enjoy anything. Because until, until basically until we're a Buddha, we see things dually. Like, it's either this or it's that. It's, it's not in the middle. It's either really good or it's really bad. So our mind automatically goes to the opposite, the opposite extreme. So it's being attracted to things in a way which can't bring you ultimate satisfaction or happiness. Because the karma that's behind the object will wear out and you will lose it. And the ignorant desire misapprehends or mistakes the object. It sees the object and thinks of it in the wrong way. You want something nice out of an object and you can't. You just can't get it. It'll always turn bad. So don't not getting so attached to small pleasures. So not getting attached to pizza that you have to go out and keep buying it over and over because you could ultimately get a pure pizza, which is like what a Buddha experiences pizza. It doesn't change to hunger or disappointment. So what would be the difference between liking it ignorantly and liking it intelligently. What's the difference there? When you see your pizza as anything other than your own projection forced on you by your past karma, then you're misperceiving the pizza. Which doesn't mean you can't enjoy the pizza. So when you misperceive the pizza, then you have mental afflictions towards it. Like, he calls it stupid desire, stupid disliking. Because if you understand its emptiness, you understand its dependent origination as well. And then you can't have that type of desire towards it. So when you perceive the object correctly as an empty object, 
which you're perceiving a certain way because of things you did in the past, past karmic seeds that you've planted, then you can't have stupid desire or disliking towards it, like we were saying in the beginning. You just can't. It just can't work that way. And stupid implies that you would do something non-virtuous to get it. So it's not possible. You can't plant bad karma without thinking it's self-existent. The only way we're planting bad karma is because we think things are self-existent, which is the opposite of thinking about their emptiness or how they do exist, you know, in an ultimate sense. If we understand that getting pizza comes from giving people food, then we would never hurt anyone to get pizza again. We would never be rude to the person on the phone because we were in a rush when we were ordering the pizza and we just wanted to get the order in really quickly. We would never do that. So understanding where the pizza came from and that would be understanding dependent origination. Then if you know it's coming from good karma, it would never even enter your mind to hurt someone to get it. Like you know it's coming from good karma, so to plant bad karmic seeds, it just doesn't even make sense that that would be how you got something. And then virtue that we do or good deeds can also be stupid when we aren't understanding emptiness. And then the problem with the result is what? Do you guys remember? So if we're not thinking about emptiness when we're doing something, what's the problem with the result? It's mm-hmm. It wears out, um, like our bodies. Our bodies are a result of stupid good deeds. Our salary is a result of stupid good deeds. Every relationship we have that ended that we didn't want it to is a result of stupid good deeds. So everything in our life, basically, it all wears out. So the difference, doing things with wisdom or an understanding of emptiness is the difference between a perfection or not. And we've gone over that one before. And Master Nagarjuna says, too, if you don't go too deep with the pizza thing, um, there is like a round red and white thing that smells a certain way. So the whole pizza. And your mind, due to influence of past data, organizes this thing into something called pizza. But, oh, this is appropriate, actually. But then if an ant comes along <laughs> and the pizza is like piping hot and the ant steps on the cheese, he'd experience it as a hell realm. Mm -hmm. and our karma forces us to see it as pizza we're not deciding to see it as pizza we have to he's not deciding to see it as incredible suffering or she they have to see it that way and so both beings are right both beings are having a different experience and both of them are valid but then does the sense data exist independently the round red and white thing. 
Are you forced to see the triangle shape of the slice of a pizza? And would every, tri would every sentient being see the triangle mm -hmm. with red and white? Mm -hmm. And so if we do the emptiness meditation on that object, if we keep going down level and level and level and level, we won't find anything. There's not an end point. Unexamined, there is a triangle or a circle there, slice of pizza or the whole pizza. But if we truly examine it, there, there isn't really anything there on its own. And we're not going to go into that that deeply. But it's the same thing. Bad deeds equal um, someone yelling at us. Good deeds equal pizza, if we like pizza. And neutral, which I think this is really interesting, are, is the background ignorance always going on in your mind? Actively not understanding your world. That's where the neutral comes from. Okay, we'll just go over this next little bit and then we'll take a break. So is there wise desire? <laughs> so, so yes, there is. And the way, so the way to use emptiness to destroy anger is, so somebody's screaming at you, maybe your boss, maybe your friend, your parents, your boyfriend, your husband and you think that this person's empty, does it stop them from screaming at you? No. No. Do you feel better about them screaming at you? No. <laughs> Not really. Because we're forced to see it in a certain way, and it's hurtful. So he or she is empty. And then maybe others are enjoying what they're doing because they think you deserve it. So how do we get those same seeds back? Why, like, why is this person yelling at us? Because we've yelled before. So we would never, ever yell back at somebody. We would never get angry at someone who's angry at us in traffic or in any, rela any relationship we've ever had, like even, you know, just talking to a friend, or we would never get angry. So what about when something nice happens? Intelligent desire would look like yum, delicious, and understand its emptiness. So I'm enjoying this because I was good in my past life. And I think maybe it even adds more enjoyment to it. It's So it's not that the sense that we're supposed to be neutral and like have no feelings about anything or not care either way. It's more like we complete, I think it's more like we enjoy more. We completely enjoy it, but just with the understanding of where it came from. Awesome, I planted really good seeds in the past. That's why this is happening. What a great thing. And it's delicious and I'm gonna enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You like rejoice in all the good deeds that you did to get. Yeah. 
Because eventually, if you <coughs> purify enough and plan enough good deeds, like, you can't have a bad slice. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it might end, but, like, everything in your life is just going to be better. So, like, you can't even, like, not enjoy things even if you wanted to have it. Like, renunciation is, oh, I don't enjoy things. Like, that just wouldn't be possible because even, like, a stale crust of bread would be, like, the best meal you ever ate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it would. I think it would add more. I think it adds more enjoyment too. Because not only are you even say it was going to be enjoyable anyways. Yeah. So you might as well supercharge it, and also think about I'm eating this so that I can get some energy to serve the people in my world. And it. You know, I planted great seeds, and that's why I have it, and this is so cool. So it's way more exciting than just some crappy piece of pizza that tastes good, and then it's gone, you know? Yeah, and it also makes me feel less guilty about all the things that I have. Like, not that I, like, want everything for myself, but, you know, it's like I have a really nice house, and I have a car that, you know, it's, I'm like, it's easy, because you see people who have, like, nothing. So instead of Not that I shouldn't give things away or give it all away or whatever, but it's not like some inherent thing in me or like some greediness in me or something. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it better, but... Well, I think that we have this idea that um, we can't have nice... We can't really have nice things or like they have to be like... I don't know, like it has to be a nice Subaru or something for it to be okay because that's like, I don't know, (laughs) it's like (laughs) acceptable culturally or... It's like a practical nice car. Right. Okay. But we can't, but if we have a Porsche or something, like we can't do that. Or it's like, that's too over the top. Yeah. But I think we have like this sort of, that's the guilt thing that he was talking about. Like we have, we're like looking for things to feel guilty about and we feel like if we're spiritual then we can't have nice things and we can't do nice things we can't go nice places like Mm -hmm. we just we're not allowed to because it's I don't know it's like because inherently it's getting stuck in samsara that's what I think that's kind of over what we think at least that's what comes to mind for me where when we're talking about this it's not like you see his holiness the Dalai Lama I've heard I guess Michael tell this story a bunch of times but, like, he um, was at a banquet or a dinner or something, and His Holiness was there. And he said he was, like, like digging in like nobody else. He, like, enjoyed the meal so much, and he, like, ate everything, and he was just, like, <laughs> really happy. So it's, it's not that we have to sit there and, like, abstain from everything and torture ourselves, because that's not the middle way, and that's what we're on the middle way path. That's one extreme or the other. Yeah, and it's a really nice way to think of how the world could be, because I think right now in our, well, especially in our capitalistic culture, it's like either, like, there's not enough to go around, and Mm -hmm. so it's like people have to have things at the expense of other people, and, like, Mm -hmm. there can never be, like, an, it's, like, either equitable and everyone's poor, or, like, you know, and, but it's, like, when you look at things with a sense of emptiness, it's like the whole world could be pure and everyone has everything that they need and everything could be bliss and no one is left out. 
Mm-hmm. It's just, like, a really different way to look at the world and, like, how to get there. Not to say we don't live in a, like, right. the world ripens for me in a capitalistic way where resources are not enough to go around. But, yeah, like, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, I could project a world in the future that everyone has enough. Mm-hmm. Which is which is why it's so it's so cool because maybe it's because um, growing up in like a Christian culture, I don't think this is really what the point of Christianity is. But the way we've interpreted it in our culture, it's like you know original sin, which is guilt, and then um, like the self punishment. Where in order to be a holy person or practicing something, you're supposed to be like, I don't know, like whipping yourself and like never having anything enjoyable. I don't know. Like how does that equal coming to bliss and full awakening, you know? So I think we kind of have that from our culture. Even though I never even really practiced religion growing up. But just being in a culture where this, that's, hugely the dominant religion in our country mm-hmm. for sure well, and it so it just seeps in yeah discipline yeah so we can we can like good things that's okay and it's okay to have like it's great to have this huge practice of rejoicing for all the good things, too. And if the goal of Buddhism was to put up with crappy things, great things, and neutral things, um, and not care, then a Buddha paradise would be like that. It'd be like these Buddhas hanging out in paradise with all this really <laughs> crappy stuff, and then things like who cares, and then great things, and them just having like who cares? I don't care about any of this, and that's not the that's not the goal. That's not. I mean, like, look at all the tonkas. It's not like <laughs> it's not like they're surrounded by like trash and like people yelling at them and um, traffic jams and you know. And then there's like some good things and then just like a big neutral blob somewhere. It's like they're all in paradise. So it's understanding our friend and our enemy and learning to feel like to love them as much as we love the person that we love the most in the world. Feeling equal in that way. So that would be equanimity. And as we're talking about these things, don't ever think that projection means that things don't exist. That's not what we're saying. And also what we're talking about tonight, we can't completely properly apply it until we see emptiness directly. So that's why we're training. And that's why we're meditating all the time and trying to get to a point where we can see that. So then we can get out of the cycle completely at a certain point and be in a Buddha paradise where we can help, where we can truly be of some service to people.
you know, by getting ourselves out first. Then we can show them the way. Okay, I think let's take a break. So we are talking about, is the goal of the Buddhist practice not to have any desire at all? That's what we've been talking about. And then now we're moving on to the four steps for collecting negative karma. So these would be things that we don't want to do. Okay, the first one is... We misunderstand the object. You think it exists independent of your own projections, like the delicious slice of cheese pizza. It exists out there on its own, nothing to do with me. The slice of pizza is there. And then you want the object. I want that. I have to have that pizza. And then you're willing to do something unethical to get it. And then by doing that, you collect bad karma. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point is, if step number one isn't there, which is misunderstanding the object, then you can't collect bad karma because you're not going to do the rest of the steps. So we can just cut it off right there. And it'd be a relatively easy habit to start doing. Just like, where does this come from? How does this exist? Or whatever mm -hmm. phrase works for you. How does this pizza exist? Why do I have this pizza? Why do I want this pizza? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really good with, like, sugar cravings, I feel like. Well, it's also, like... I don't know. I mean, it's complicated. But also, if we're going to have something like sugar, mm -hmm. and we enjoy it, to think, awesome, I have the seeds to enjoy this. I planted karmic seeds. They're ripening as this, enjoy, like this enjoyable chocolate cake. And then, if we're, maybe if we're thinking about it that way, then we're not going to overdo it, too. I don't know. I haven't tried it tried it as far as that but it's not like another way where we feel guilty about it or guilty about something so we just have it and rejoice it I don't know I haven't tried it with I haven't really tried it with a lot of like dessert or like food cravings but maybe if we're looking at it Yeah, I think we should all try it. If we're looking at it, like, maybe we're trying not to eat much sugar, which I'm actually not eating sugar right now at all. So if we look at the dessert with the idea of emptiness and, like, look at it from that, from that point of view, then 
maybe we don't have the affliction where like I have well that's the whole point we wouldn't have that affliction where we'd be willing to do something crappy to get it but that doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't still eat it what if you're not doing something crappy <laughs> well then that's good can, like I'm trying to think would the subtlest thing that would be crappy to get it like ignorantly liking it or ignorantly disliking it or ignorance itself so it doesn't have to be a big crappy thing it could just like it could be really subtle thinking that that is out there and I'm going to get it, you know, like in that greedy, ignorantly liking way. Like, that's how I got the pizza. Mm-hmm. Or, we're talking about dessert. That's how I get the dessert, is by grabbing it and, like, taking it. And making sure that I get the last piece. Or I get the, the best piece before other people get theirs. <laughs> so it's not, it doesn't have to be, like, a huge bad thing that we're doing. It's still looking at it through the, the lens of the three poisons. If we're, if we're thinking that it's out there on its own and we're getting it by taking it before somebody else or, um, yeah, getting in line in front of someone else to order it because we know there's only a few slices left or, um, or even just the idea of how it exists in, in a wrong way. Like, it's out there, and I have to take it. That's how I get the pizza. Does that answer what you're going to? So we, we would have the understanding that good things only come from doing good. If we're thinking about emptiness, we're thinking about karma. So we're not going to get something by doing something bad. And then we would never commit a non-virtue to get something. So stupid liking and disliking is based on being willing to do non-virtue because of ignorance about the nature of where the good things came from. And non-stupid liking or disliking would be to have wisdom and to understand the emptiness of an object while you're experiencing it. So an example would be wanting good things while understanding that you must do virtue to experience empty objects as enjoyable. Or disliking unpleasant things and thinking I have to avoid non-virtue to experience empty objects as unpleasant. Or to avoid experiencing empty objects as unpleasant. And then intelligent liking is enjoying something while understanding its emptiness and understanding that the experience is forced on you by past deeds that you did. So as a result of either virtue or non-virtue done in the past. And then we have to experience a good or bad result based on that. And it's actually really fun to think. Like, I I kind of got tripped up on this 
a lot at first where, um, okay, so if I like, Kesha Michael always use a maple donut as an example. If I like maple donuts, which I don't actually, but if I liked maple donuts, um, how did I, how do I get a maple donut? Just like the easiest possible correlation you could think of. That, but how do I, like, how do I get maple donuts in my life? Like, karmically or? Yeah. Oh, conventionally. Oh, I thought you just meant conventionally. Yeah. Oh, you, like, buy a box of maple donuts and, like, pass them out to people? Yep. So I get maple donuts only by giving them. So if you think that when you're getting, when you're reaching for something or thinking about lunch or thinking about a snack, the only way... I have this snack in my life is because I gave it away. It totally changes it, and you want to try to give things away more. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, if I'm always giving away the maple donut, then I'm never going to have a maple donut. But it doesn't work like that. I used to always mm-hmm. think that. Always have one to give. Yeah, so the, there'll just be more maple donuts that'll come. Like someone will bring a whole box as a yeah. something for your birthday, and like... It'll work out some way that you can't that you can't think of. Yeah. So if you think about it in those terms, like anything that you have, I think it's really it's helpful to do with food. But I have I have this attachment with food for sure. Yeah. I have this latte because I gave lattes away. That's the only reason I have this. And then it makes you want to give it more. It's real. It's just. I mean, it's really interesting to play around with. I think too. Mm-hmm. So then, when we have the good thing, we revel and we rejoice in the good things that we did in the past, because we did a lot of good things to get that, that thing popping up in our life. And then also, if we're thinking of emptiness, and maybe hopefully the bodhisattva ideal, like I'm eating this. So I have fuel to serve all beings so I can reach full awakening in this life, whatever the dedication is. Then we're creating an even more powerful seed that the result will be enlightenment instead of just some crappy thing that wears out. Okay. So the three reasons to use the four forces to purify negative karma. And these are, I think these are kind of funny, actually. Um, so the first one. <laughs> the Tibetan or the actual three reasons? Like what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Maybe not the first one, but. Um, so say Lendre. Lendre. Ki Lamye La. Ki Lamye La. Mikepa. Mikepa. ki nam la mikepa. Okay. I don't know why I have an A there. But um this is action slash consequences. And then all details don't understand. So basically, 
seeing all the karmic causes is considered shintokokyur, which is deeply hidden reality. It's one level higher than seeing emptiness directly, being able to see all the karmic causes. And that's why purification is so important because karma is really difficult to understand. We can't grasp all the laws of karma. They're just too subtle. We basically have to be enlightened to understand. So up until that point, we have to depend on the words of an enlightened being to understand it all. So that's the first one. Number two, say Chang Se. Shi Kyung. Dor Len. Sul Shin Du Mi Jepa. Chang Se Shi Kyung. Dor Len. Sul Shin Du Mi Jepa. Okay. So that first one is a bit may understand, and then but, take up, give up, in the proper way, don't do. And this one is basically, even if we understand karma a little, we can't control ourselves to do the right thing. We can't apply what we do, <laughs> what we do know very well. And we're unable to do what benefits us and avoid what hurts us. We're just not able to. Like, we try over and over and over. Doesn't mean we're not ever going to be able to. So that's why we have to... So that's why we have to purify. And we've, and we've all studied a little, but... But we know we can't control ourselves. We try, and we keep trying. But we keep doing negative deeds, so we have to purify. We just have to. If we weren't doing any new bad karma, then we could just purify the past deeds, and we'd be totally done. Our problem is we can't understand karma well, and we keep doing bad deeds. And in order for the purification to work, it must be well applied serious and consistent over time to overcome our non-virtues. And if we do this, the purification overcomes the bad deeds and then things in our life will improve noticeably. Wimpy purification doesn't have much noticeable effect. So as long as we're purifying, we might as well do it full on. We're spending the time purifying anyways. So just do it in like a big, powerful way. And we've talked about this before too, but as we purify old bad karmas, they ripen as small sufferings and things sometimes seem to be getting worse. But then after all of that old collection is, is used up, then things in this life will begin to improve unless we're generating more non-virtue than we can purify. So that's why we have to be purifying every day. At least, at least once a day, like at least before you go to bed at night, be purifying. If not, all throughout the day. And it's an easy practice that we can just do in our mind, the four, the four powers, the four forces. 
So if we don't practice well and purify consistently, we won't see results. And we'll practice for a little bit, and then we'll give up and just do some other spiritual practice, you know, for a while, and then we'll just end up quitting. So we have to put the practices into practice in order for them to work. They're not going to work unless we do them. But if we work hard at it, we'll notice changes pretty quickly. It doesn't take that long. I've been practicing this last week, and it feels like things are moving, and I'm seeing it. Oh, good. Good. Mm-hmm. Have you, um, what have you been practicing? Um, like purifying. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like even in the moment too, just oh like, good. Oh shit! <laughs> 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 That's awesome. <laughs> so the third reason to use the four forces. Say John John Sem Kwe Jik Jong. John Sem Kwe Jik Jong. Okay. So basically, this is that purification clears away the obstacles to reaching the state of mind where you can love others as much as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And just thinking like. This blissful state of caring for others as much as you care for yourself. It, it's almost unimag- unimaginable. What would that feel like? Mm-hmm. It, I think it would, be, it would be amazing and lovely. You would care for everybody so much. Like, maybe thinking of the person that we love and care the most in the world besides ourselves feeling like everywhere we went, everyone we saw, we would feel that way about. It, I mean, the world would just be like a magical, beautiful place. It would be like all your favorite family or friends is everywhere, or, you know, like was everywhere that you went. So the four forces are a must to remove the obstacles to this. And then after we've cleared away the obstacles or negativities in our mind, to getting bodhicitta by doing the four forces, then we have to collect some positive energy, which will help the bodhicitta grow. This is just about it. Oh. Okay. Okay, so these are the five practices for collecting positive energy needed to gain bodhicitta. And we kind of talked about this first one. Say yi rong. Yi rong. Which kind of sounds like yi rong. <laughs> like rejoicing, you know? <laughs> so the first one is rejoicing. Being happy about the good things that you and others do. Feeling joy about them. And the three levels, being happy about anything good you're doing to get to a higher realm is called first level rejoicing. 
And this mostly involves avoiding the ten non-virtues. Number two, being happy about you or another doing good things to get to nirvana. And this mainly involves doing things to permanently remove mental afflictions. And it most specifically involves seeing emptiness. And then the third one, being happy about things done by yourself or others to become fully enlightened. So it corresponds to the different intentions for practice. Number two, say kula. 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 So number two is asking holy beings to teach dharma. So these, these are how we're going to collect the positive energy that we need to gain bodhicitta. Number one, rejoicing. Number two, asking holy beings to teach dharma. And that's what the prayers are that we do in the beginning. It's like a request for the teachings. Because usually Buddhist teachers won't teach unless you ask. And three times is traditional. In our culture, it's a little bit different. Um, but asking, so you have to ask in the right way. And asking in the right way means to primarily to show that you're applying what they've already taught you, what the teacher's already taught you, and you're making others happier rather than the opposite. So it's basically the right way is living your life based on what they've already taught you. Number three is Somdeb. 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 This is requesting your teachers to stay and not to pass on to nirvana, not to pass away. And the act of asking them to remain creates the karma for them to continue appearing to you. And if your karma wears out, then your teacher will leave you. So you're replanting the seeds for them to stay by asking them. I'd say all the time. You can, I mean, it can be a meditation too. Okay. But just like as, as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Or whenever you send them an email or whenever they're, whenever they're teaching. You know, whenever, as long as it's appropriate or good time. You know, because I feel like it's always like, please teach me, like, other will be weird. <laughs> like, no. not here, but like. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, well, even here, since I feel like it's slightly. But then I have another person. Um, well, I've had a few teachers, you know, that I worked with, that I want, that I wanted to keep working Ask them to stay. Yeah, please stay and teach. Yeah, please keep teaching. It doesn't have to be in some like, I don't know, like weird 
Buddhist way or something, you know? <laughs> if that seems weird in another context. But here, any teacher that's here, they know all these teachings. No, nobody's going to think it's weird. They all know it. You can, you can say it to any teacher here. It doesn't mean you have to say it in front of everybody if it feels odd, but, but it's not. You just say, please, please stay and teach. It can be like, it can be like a casual thing, too. Yeah. Um, okay, so number four is Noah. 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 Which is dedication. And there's four kinds of dedication. So number one is a general dedication. So this is basically you're putting your good virtue in the bank to be saved and used for enlightenment rather than cashing it out and wasting it all on, um, I don't know, buying like clothes and makeup or something. Okay? So if you don't dedicate your good virtues, they can be destroyed by non-virtue. So that's why it's important. So the first one, general dedication. May all beings become enlightened by this deed. Number two, dedicating virtue to help sick people. Number three, dedicating virtue to help hungry and thirsty people. And number four, dedicating virtue so that all beings can get anything that they want. And then the fifth one, say tong sem. Tong sem. It's generosity or surrender. And this is a total willingness to give up everything you have for other people. Your body, anything you own, all your goodness, good karma. Completely willing to give those things up. A week after you have... <laughs> after, after you talk about the money and you said you had money... <laughs> what did I say? She had the dollar bills and... And then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I don't know. It was 
yeah. It's yeah. It's I think it's helpful. Visualize it. Um, like the next time someone comes up to you, visualize just like giving them, you know, like whenever you think of it, just visualize it. Visualize giving them money or get, or, or you know, like actually doing it. But it's good that you think of it, you know, and like remember it too. It's so hard. It it is. It's really hard. It's hard to get in the habit of doing, I think. Yeah. Even though you know, you know, it's like, why didn't I just get, you know, I had this idea in my head, like, this person doesn't look like they're hungry. You know, I'm like, I'm just having these ideas, thinking. Well, it's not, I, I don't know. I mean, unless you're, like, deciding I'm going to give it to everybody who asks, that's, like, one thing. But, I mean, I think sometimes there it is maybe just not, like, the right situation, too. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It doesn't... I think... I, I honestly think, especially as a woman, like, sometimes yeah. it's not, like, and you're the right wrong. time. If it's... Especially, you know, it's, like, dark, or it's yeah. a guy who's asking you, and... It was dark, you, and I was about to go to the ATM, and then I'm walking down the street. You know, I mean, it's down K Yeah, so there's like other circumstances happening, you know. So it's good that you thought of it, and maybe that wasn't the right time to do something either. Because you don't want to give someone the opportunity to do something negative either. Mm -hmm. You know, it's dark and like you're by yourself, so. Mm -hmm. But if you want to give, in general, when people are asking, I think it's really helpful to visualize it. Just whoever asks you, visualize, and then you just automatically give. But you're visualizing right before you... No, like, totally separate. Like, when you're driving to work, like, just imagine the guy coming up. Instead of, like, not saying anything and panicking, being like, here, have a 20 in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, or someone, when you're driving, someone asks you and you just, like grab money and like give it to him out the window and that's yeah. like not you don't actually have to do it just visualizing it yeah okay yeah so this last one is this total willingness to give up everything you have for other people and it's not really the perfection of giving but um it's a warm up for it And if we don't practice all five of these strongly and sincerely, then we won't get bodhicitta. And if we're doing like a a daily meditation, let's see, there's rejoicing, asking for dharma, dedication. Then we're doing these steps in the preliminaries to meditation. So if we're doing those practices, and probably if we're doing the book where we're thinking about bodhicitta, we're dedicating, um, so some of those are in there too. So it's kind of like, well, especially with the, the preliminaries to meditation, they're all, every single one of them are hitting there, and that's 
that's really good to be doing every single day, um, no matter what. And it doesn't necessarily, if we're, doesn't necessarily have to be a meditation if for some reason like we're not meditating that day or whatever. It can be just in our mind. We can think about it. It can be when we're driving or when we're walking. You can visualize anywhere. It doesn't have to be formally on the cushion, although it's good to have that practice too. Formal meditation practice. The preliminaries to meditation, yeah. Like visualizing your teacher and going through all the steps, which are, all of these cover that, these five. Actually, Heather, I was thinking that they're all covered in the seven-word prayer, too. Same thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. so even if you just have enough time to do that. Yep, that's what I'm referring to. Yep, it is. And that, yeah, if, I mean, on the cushion or not, if you're not on the cushion, then it's okay, at least just doing it every day. So it has the purification in there, too. Okay. So, that is all. It's 829. I'll just sit for just a moment and just let all the energy relax out of your head, feeling grounded, physical body open, and like you're absorbing this golden radiant light of the entire lineage of teachings. And so you'll automatically remember to think about emptiness. Do these steps for purifying and growing good seeds. And Lauren will lead us in the closing prayers. Puki Chukshing Maitok Tram Rirabling Shing Indeg Empadi Sange Shingu Mikte Uwagi Drokun Amdak Shing Lad 
Ruchi Pasho Idam Guru Thank you.